0: So what a challenge for us, a huge challenge, and i, I really encourage you, and I think that when many of us, when we listen to a message on anything to do with evangelism, or some of us, I think, by default, we just switch off, but if we can bring up a scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.20, it actually calls us every single one of us are supposed to be ambassadors. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. This is every single one of us. As though God were making his appeal through us. So maybe you can just say that right now. I am an ambassador. And listen, not everyone's like the best evangelist. But everyone is called to be an ambassador. For, to, for God to reach through you, through your gifting, through you, who you are. But you've just got to offer yourself. You've just got to offer yourself. You've just got to make yourself available. And you can say, like that great preacher that Jacques does, like the little child with the five fish. He comes with a five fish and there's two loaves and just says, I mean, he's got to feed 5,000. Come with your little bit, at least come. And then see the miracle that God will do because God took those five fish and two loaves. Have I got the numbers right? And he fed 5,000. Just make yourself available. Part of the armor of God is putting on the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Are you waking up in the morning saying, I'm ready? <laughs> Jesus is. He's ready. He's like looking for opportunities. Are, are we making ourselves available? So let that scripture really speak to you. Corinthians We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. You are his ambassador. And we see in the life of Paul in Romans 1, 15 to 16, that he's not only, and this is a challenge to us, he's not only like compelled and feeling obligated to go and preach the gospel. He says in verse 14 that he feels obligated. He actually says, um, that is why I am so eager. He's not only feeling like, yeah, I've got to do this. He's actually eager. How many of us are eager? And then he goes on to say, "Far, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation. There's power, and that is why he is eager. And he talks about it being foolishness to the, the Greeks. You know, like we know that it's to some it's a dumb story, the story of Jesus. For now, some of them go like, oh, that old story,' you know. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God because God has anointed that story, which is a historical fact." So when we tell that story, there's power behind it for those that he's chosen to be saved. We don't know who they are, but we just do our part. The rest is in God's hands, but they need to hear the story. What I wanted to speak about today, which is the most important thing, and I think that perhaps that's why many of us actually hold back from the story, is um, as believers, we... Uh, we love Jesus and we love to um, share that part about God. But there's a part that we don't really, we feel kind of a bit blind about sharing, and that's the whole thing about hell. And even in our hearts, we struggle to how, to reconcile, how can a God of love also send people to hell? He's had that, if you haven't, you're lying, because everyone has. Even... C.S. Lewis once wrote, regarding hell, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. And I'm hoping today, as we look at hell, I'm hoping that you actually, by the end of the session, you can actually go, okay, if at Christmas dinner, Bob brings up hell, okay, I feel a bit better. I feel like, so basically this is like an apologetic session. To make you be able to handle, you know, the Bible talks about handling the Word of God correctly. I'm hoping that after the session, you're going to be going, okay. I'm going to be, I feel a little bit more comfortable to be able to deal with the subject of hell. And if someone says, "How can a God of love send people to hell?" that you'll go, "Oh, Joey did this last week," and you'll feel a little bit better to be able to handle that because I think it's important. Otherwise, you're going to go in feeling like, "Please do not bring up that subject." But it's pretty much, when we talk about people getting saved, it's the number one subject. Saved from what? Saved from hell. And over the years, everyone's tried to do something with hell. You know, do we make it less? And then sometimes it becomes like too much. But the reality is is that we need to handle it correctly. We need to be able to be fairly comfortable with going, okay, um, I can manage this. And he has the challenge. Charles Spurgeon says this it is a remarkable fact that no inspired preacher of whom we have any record ever uttered such terrible words concerning the destiny of the lost as our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus preached about hell all the time. But we don't. Even when I introduced the, 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 the preach of hell right now, everyone was like, You're kidding. But I shouldn't be kidding. Because if Jesus preached about it so much, shouldn't we be talking about it? And I think the reason why we we don't so much is we struggle with a marriage of between a God of love and a God that can send people to hell. And I'm hoping today that you guys are going to have some answers on that. Incredible scripture. And... um, This is going to illustrate to us profoundly is that we need to understand that God is not only a God of love, but God is also a God of judgment. And if you can today weigh the thing about the God of love and the God of judgment, and you can weigh it well, you're going to be able to answer guys across the Christmas table when they say, how can a God of love send people to hell? When you understand that God is not just the God of love, he's also a God of judgment. And that's where we're going to land today. And we're going to open that up. So Exodus 30 through 18 to 19, Moses says, please show me your glory. Moses, God's appearing to Moses face to face. I mean, it's incredible, treating him as a friend. So he grabs a moment to say, show me your glory. And out of all the things that God can display, he doesn't do a big light show, he doesn't do miracles, he shows him what he's like. And we see that in, uh, a, th- the, a little bit later on, Exodus 34, 5 to 7. So, uh, sorry, 34, 33, 18 to 19. I will cause on my goodness to pass before you. And then on to Exodus 34, 5 to 7, God does that. And the Lord descended in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord describing himself. It's like me talking about myself, except I'm probably going to maybe embellish, either be less than I am or more than I am. Hopefully I try to be sober-minded about myself. But this is God describing himself. We've got to trust that this is true. We know that God is not a man, that he should lie. Then the Lord passed in front of Moses and called out, The Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, Rebellion and sin. Pause. Everything's feeling fine so far. Okay? We've heard about a God who's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness, and maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. At this point in time, we have no problem with the progression of this passage. And then suddenly we see this big... Yet, if we can keep it up, yet, everyone say yet, and here's where the God of judgment piece comes in, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, I know many times it's one of my favorite scriptures in the Old Testament because it describes us so Accurately, how, um, uh, how God is. You know, He's so loving, He's so different to our dads, you know, even our good dads, He's better than our, b- our best dads, you know. And, and then for some reason, I wish, I, I always used to wish, I wish the, 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 whoever put in the numbers for the Bible, I wish they kind of, um, put yet as verse 8, because I could have just left it out. You know what it's like, you just pick and choose. But somehow, uh, yet was left in, as part of the other thing, and you just can't escape it. You can't escape the yet. And maybe that's God's providence that he didn't make yet number eight, because it's kind of a different idea. You know, normally he starts a new idea. Maybe the the Holy Spirit literally said, please don't make yet verse eight. Because we can't just see a God of love, we've got to see a God of judgment. And we need to understand that God is not only the great God of love, he's also the great magistrate of the universe. And a magistrate that just lets everyone go free is not a good magistrate. Who thinks a magistrate, you know, a magistrate at the courts and everyone just turns up and you go free, you go free. Is that a good magistrate? No, a magistrate must rule fairly. And not everyone can get away. He's got to pronounce judgment and we and I 'm a little bit sympathetic towards God right now because we think where's it coming from is it coming from god 's heart only the sense of justice I believe it is but it's not just his heart crying out for justice it's things that are crying out to him for justice and we see that in Genesis 4:10 this is God speaking to uh, Cain, the first beautiful baby ever born in our wonderful species that turns out to murder his brother. And if that's not an indicament on our species, human homo sapiens, human beings, is that the first baby ever born without a belly, with a belly button, Adam and Eve, I don't know if they had belly buttons or not, because they didn't have a mom and dad, but he had the first belly button guaranteed. And he turns out to be, wow, what is my child going to become? The first human ever born on earth. Murders his brother in cold blood. That's us. We're wicked because of what we've inherited from Adam. And God says to Cain after Abel's been slain, and I, they didn't even fight. Cain crept up behind Abel because he was jealous of him, of his sacrifice, and murdered him in cold blood. And God. Comes up to Cain. I mean, it's it's more radical than you know the stuff we're watching in the series. You know, this like whatever TV series you're watching. It's hectic. It's evil. This is his own brother murdered in cold blood. Just left him there and walked away. I mean, there's something in us goes that is hectic. And the Lord says in Genesis 14, the Lord said, "What have you done?" Speaking to Cain, listen, and he has the part. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What's the blood crying out to? It's crying out for justice. And who is the judge? God. And as God is the judge, I'm sympathetic with God. God is hearing the cries come out to him for justice. The blood of Abel is crying out to God. How can he not be a judge? The only one who can judge the universe, the magistrate of the universe, crying out for justice And justice dictates that sin must be punished. The good news for us is that God's need for justice is met in Jesus. All God's wrath is poured out on Jesus. If you accept Jesus, you escape God's wrath. You escape God's punishment. And here's the interesting thing. John three thirty six, if we can bring that up. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Those guys we're seeing in the street that are not following Jesus, God's wrath remains on them. And we'll look at a, that a little bit more. Something that I wanted to look back at that incredible scripture from Exodus. Is how many, how much was, and I I wanted to, what I think is is the intention of God's heart, is how much did He bless? How many generations did He bless? A thousand. How many generations did He curse? Three or four. Can you see the intention of where God's waited? He's waited so much more to bless. He could have said, I I bless three to four and I curse a thousand. He said, I bless a thousand but I only curse the three. God's heart. Look at the numbers, the thousands of mathematicians, thousands of three to four. God's heart is so much weighed on mercy. But he's still got to be a judge. Someone's still got to answer that cry of blood. The only person who can in the universe, because all of us have got blood on our hands. Not, we may not have killed someone, but you know what I mean? All of us are guilty of hurting ourselves and hurting other people. There's only one person that doesn't have blood on their hands except for Jesus who took our our stuff and put it on himself. But before that, he was spotless. The spotless lamb. Is God worthy to judge? And we sometimes uh, counsel guys. We've counseled guys in the past. And they're dealing with so many hurts. And they go through all the people they've forgiven. And then they go... I need to forgive God. Listen, God doesn't need forgiveness. God has never, ever done anything wrong. Previously, now, and never will do anything wrong. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says this. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. I know you may have some unanswered questions about how God has dealt with you in your life. Why well, did this thing happen? I can guarantee you that according to that scripture, a faithful God who does no wrong, He has done nothing wrong in history, nor will He. Revelations 5, four says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. And the question here, is God worthy to judge? To open the scroll or look inside, then one of the elders said to me, "Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah referring to Jesus. The root of David is triumph. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. So we understand that God is not only a god of love, 1 John 14:6, uh, John Wesley's one of his favorite passages, John Wesley was big on the love of God, because God actually is more loving than we actually think he is. Um. And we know uh, there, right in the middle there, God is love. Three words separated by two full stops. God is love, but we also know that God is not only a God of love but a God of judgment. James four twelve. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. There is only one judge, and we need to settle this in our hearts that despite the fact that God is weighted towards mercy, a thousand to three to four, you can do those stats here. Yeah? I mean, I think that it has a sense of where God's heart is. I mean, he wants to pour out his blessing. He wants to pour out his love. He doesn't like to execute judgment, but he has to. The universe cries out, Abel's blood cries out for justice. And God is the only one who will 100% be able to judge and administer, as a magistrate, perfect uh, punishment, or per- perfect um, consequences for where we have fallen short. I think for most of us, we can relax. <laughs> we, this is a side of God that we don't have to deal with. But when you're sharing with the unbeliever, you need to understand that unless they have Jesus that this is the side of God that they are going to deal with. That the Bible calls that last day not only a great day, but it also calls it a terrible day. So is sin that serious? And I love those two prophetic words. One prophetic word came from Fred um, about sin, the snake. And then the other one came, there was another one about sin. Who brought that second one about sin? Megan. And... The, the, the problem with most of us when we deal with the concept of hell is we actually think that sin is not that serious. Like we, feel like we, we, understand it's not good, and may, and we kind of feel like the punishment exceeds the infringement. So we kind of like uh, we know, like we know sin's bad, but is sin really so bad that it deserves hell? So we kind of feel like maybe hell is too great a judgment for sin. We kind of feel that like Hitler, okay, maybe Hitler deserves hell, but does Bob the Builder down the street, Bobby the Builder down the street, Bobby the Westerner, not Bob, this one's saved, the other one is not saved. So Hitler maybe deserves hell. Does Bob down the street, my neighbor, does he deserve hell? I, I just don't think he does. So we land on this place where we think that sin is not that serious. Maybe only like if you kill six million Jews like Hitler, you know, maybe then you deserve hell. But Bob the Builder, so Bob the Plumber, he, he never, he, I mean, look at him. He's such a cool guy. He just doesn't love Jesus. And then we start to think, well, hell's going to be a bit serious. So when I share with Bob and I, and I share, I kind of say, Hey, Bob, if you don't receive Jesus, you go to hell. Deep inside, we kind of go like, "How can this guy deserve hell? He's such a nice guy." And I think the reason there is we don't understand the seriousness of sin. And I thought about a story, and I actually made up the story myself. So if you don't like it, I don't even know if it's good. Okay, so uh, this is my first use of it. But I, I thought that maybe the analogy captured what I was what. What? It's a matter of perspectives, how we see sin. So us as men and women look at sin and we go like, sin's like, it's bad, but it's not that bad. But from God's perspective, he looks down and goes, sin is very bad. Any sin is very bad. Lying, a single lie is very, very bad. And it's the story of the accountant's son. Here's the story, okay? The, the, the accountant's son, let's just imagine he's like young, five, six years old. He, he walks in one day, uh, you know, it's COVID restriction level five, so dad's working at home. And the dad, as an accountant, is working on this particular company's books, okay? And the, the, the son looks at the ledger and says, dad, why are all the numbers written in red? And the father, accountant, says to his son, son, that's because this company is bankrupt, so the son thinks for a moment and says, Dad, can't you rub out all the numbers that are in red and just rewrite them back in, in black? Like that would fix everything. Guys, anyone understand ledgers? Red's bad, black's good, yeah? So the, the son thinks, rub them all light, rewrite them in black, and everything will be fine. N- nothing changes. Nothing changes. This company is still bankrupt no matter what color I write it in. Now, that's the farthest perspective, but the sun is like red. You know, it looks really hectic. If we just put it in black, everything will be fine. And I think that's... Did you like the story? <laughs> okay, so... Um, oh, thanks, Luke. Um, Luke likes all my stories, um, even if he doesn't like them. Um, it's, it's the perspective. How... Do we view sin? If we truly knew the severity of our sin, it would be more like this Isaiah 6 5. Isaiah, famous one. In the presence of the throne room of God. Now he's got accurate perspective. Then I said, and the NLT does a cool version of it. Then I said, My destruction is sealed, for I'm a sinful man and a member of a sinful race, yet I've seen the king the Lord Almighty. My NLT is completely different. This one says, Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Jonathan Edwards, in his um, famous preach, and you guys can have a look at it online, one of the most famous preachers in history the Calvinist, study at night and day. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it in July 8, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. And he said this. And when he said this, and I'll tell you in a moment, I can tell you the result. And now's the description. The crying and weeping became so bad that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. And this is what he said. Your wickedness makes you as heavy as lead. And to tend downward with great pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. That is a more accurate perspective of sin. Some of us might say, but surely there's different levels. There's no way on earth that Hitler gets punished the same as Bob. I agree. Matthew ten fifteen says this. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that time. What is that scripture indicating? Different levels of judgment. And John Piper lands exactly here. And if John Piper says, then it's probably true. He lands exactly on this. He's got more scriptures you can research. He, John Piper lands on different levels of punishment. Hitler's down on one of the lowest levels grinding concrete. With no mask, no ear protection, and no uh, breathing apparatus, yeah? And, but at the end of the day, it's still hell. The concrete example is the closest I think, I'd because I did that once. I grinded concrete. It's closest thing, to, it's bad, okay? <laughs> so, if that's helpful for you to be able to reconcile the idea of different levels of hell. So, when someone says across the Christmas table, there's no one on earth Hitler gets punished the same way that Bob does, you can say, yeah, the scriptures actually tell us there'll be different levels of punishment. But it's still hell. The Bible teaches that hell was primarily made not for human souls, but for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So what is the original construction of of the place of hell? Was made for the devil and his angels. But uh, we see here in that same scripture that he also says to human beings, Depart from me, you who are cursed. And that's the connection point between us as human beings unredeemed, without Jesus, and the devil, and his followers, his angels, is that unredeemed humans and the devil and his angels are both cursed. And we see this in Genesis 3.14. He has the curse on Satan. The Lord said to the servant, because you have done this, uh, that's tempted Eve, cursed are you. There's the curse on Satan. The curse on humanity, Galatians 3.10, cursed, uh, for all who rely on works of the law under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Anyone in this room today, pull off the Ten Commandments in your life? No one. Because you did not pull off the Ten Commandments, everything that was written in the law, do not lie etc, etc, you know, do not look at a woman lustfully, do not, yeah, do not covet, do not want other people's stuff, don't worship the Lord with all your heart and all your mind, I mean, I haven't, I've had idols, I've worshipped other things besides Jesus after I knew Jesus, I've broken them after I knew Jesus, everyone unredeemed has that curse still sitting on them, Bob out there, even though he's very nice, he's fallen short on the Ten Commandments and a curse remains on his life. And because the curse remains on his life, Jesus has broken that curse. But until he accepts Jesus, the curse remains. We looked at the scripture, God's wrath still remains. This is very cool. Romans 2.15. John Piper lands on exactly where I landed on this. Romans 2.15. Okay, it's a big question who they is. Okay? If you look at the context, they actually is Gentiles. Gentiles, unbelievers, not believers. So it's talking about unbelievers. John Piper lands on unbelievers, okay? They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts accuse them or tell them what they are doing right. If I'm right and John Piper's right, and that scripture, have a look at the context, is talking about Gentiles, unbelievers. That means that there is a measure of God's law written on Bob's heart. He knows when he's lying; it's bad. Or the first time he did, until his heart gets hard. Average Joe in the street that doesn't even know Jesus knows that lying is bad. I mean, who's heard honesty is the best policy? It's a secular term. The unbelievers know that honesty is the best policy because there's a measure, not perfect. I mean, they suck when it comes to really finding out what's right and wrong. God has given us the full measure of discernment. But there is a tiny bit of discernment in their hearts that they know what they're doing is wrong because they are made in the image of God. There's something in them. There's some kind of conscience. I mean, every single person, I mean... Did Hitler have a conscience? I don't know. But there must have been some time when he was a child, before his heart got hard, that he knew that he, didn't do, he shouldn't do something and he did it. There was something in him saying, don't do this. Don't, don't foster that hate. Don't let that hate take hold of your heart. And he just let it. Even though deep inside he probably knew it was wrong. And because they have the law written on their hearts, they can be judged. Margot will tell you about common law. You can only hold an employee something against an employee if they know the law. You cannot prosecute an employee unless he knows the law beforehand that he broke. That's why you go through all your stuff. He's supposed to unemployment. The unbeliever knows that what he did, he shouldn't have done, and God, who's the righteous judge, therefore, is able to judge them on what they know. So we all fall under this curse because we can't pull off the law no matter how much we try. And He has the good news. Galatians 3.13. So this is... Um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is anyone is hung on a tree. What happened to that curse that was hanging over your life? Went on to Jesus. But unless they accept the Son, that first scripture, that curse still remains. The wrath still hangs over their lives. There is no way to get rid of that curse except through Jesus. The scriptures say there was no there 's no name given under he- heaven on earth that man shall be saved besides jesus i 'm paraphrasing they, they, they can do anything they can become Buddhists they can become perfect, live perfect lives they can be the nicest person there 's a lot of nice people. The curse still remains, and we see What happens, and God chose this to be in the Bible to give us a snapshot of what we will participate in, Uh, but we're not going to be in the judgment side. We're going to be like in a different movie theater, but we're going to be aware. Do you understand the concept, just quickly? We will not have to face the judgment of God, because if we did, we'd be sent where we deserve we are in Jesus. When that storm comes, we're inside the boat, the ark. And Jesus just says, it's hectic out there, but I got you. When the angel of death passed over Israel, what, what places did he leave alone? Marked with the blood. There's blood on that door, i leave it. There's not blood, bang, death. You got the, you got the mark on you. Okay, we, we we're not even going to judge you. We won't have to face the judgment. Because if we did, we'd be like Bob. Because who in this room is better than Bob? We're all Bobs. We've all fallen short. But the curse has been removed from our lives because Jesus took that curse upon himself. All humanity paid past, present, future. He's already paid for Bob, but Bob's got to claim it. Jesus doesn't have to read for him. He did it already. He's paid it. That's the crazy thing. Bob can just come claim it. He's got a check for a million bucks. He just doesn't know it. And that's when you start sharing with power. Because you start going across the Christmas table. This is waiting for you. It's free. Goodness, why aren't you accepting it? Because the devil's put a veil over his eyes. you got to pray that God gets through to him so he can claim his check. Romans 12, 20, 12, And these are hectic scriptures. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. Three verses later, Revelation 20, 15. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's like God has given... Mankind, a lifeline in Jesus, but they have chosen not to take it. C.S. Lewis said this I believe that the damned, the unsaved, those that persist, are in one sense successful rebels to the end. They know that it's on offer through us. They just deciding, I'm not going to take the offer. And then, I mean, how many times has God presented? We don't know. God keeps them presenting. They're like, nah, 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 nah. And they're successful rebels to the end. They die in this sin. And then they're in the carnage, you know. Through all of this, we need to understand that the deepest, 2 Peter 3, 9, the deepest intention of God's heart is that all be saved. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some kind of slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should perish. Reach repentance. There's God's heart. It's very important that you keep that scripture in your brain. I mean, even write that down if you can. God, because it kills some Calvinistic uh, excesses, yeah? He desires all, all to be saved. That's his intention of his heart. It's, it's coming back to the what we saw in that first scripture in Exodus. A thousand generations of blessing. Three to four I'll curse because I have to. I'm a God of, I'm the magistrate. I mean, someone's got to do the job. God's heart is that he pours out his mercy on humankind. What about the fire and the worms? Because they might ask you about that across the Christmas table. The fire and the worms. Goodness. What kind of God do you serve that has fire and worms? Isn't it a bit extreme? It could be symbolic. It could be literal fire or worms. Or it could be symbolic. Just purely symbolic. But she has an interesting thought. So, do you guys remember sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? We used to say it. I've sometimes felt that emotional anguish can be worse than physical pain. If you land there, that emotional anguish can be worse than physical pain, then it doesn't matter. If there's worms of fire, maybe the alternative to worms and fire is even worse. And I thought about this because I once processed this in my heart. Imagine the emotional anguish of sitting alone in eternity and knowing what you could have had in heaven. Imagine the emotional anguish of sitting alone in eternity and knowing that you could have had heaven. You remember that someone witnessed you once in the street. Why, oh why, did I not respond? I could have had it all. And now I sit alone forever wrestling with that reality. I think that emotional turmoil is enough. And so on top of that, he has even more hectic. There is no way out. Leonard Ravenhill famously said Hell has no exits. No exit doors. No exit signs. Nothing. You can look. No way out. Ever. Imagine sitting alone and grappling with that in your heart. I'm forever here. Ever. For me that's enough of hell in that thought without even having to add worms and flames. Does that make sense? And maybe worms and flames are symbolic. We don't know. People might say, how can a loving God leave people like that forever? This is a better way to think about it. And get this into your heart, because this is profound. It's the default setting. Okay? Bob going to hell is the default setting. He's already going to hell. John MacArthur said, people do not have to do something to go to hell. They just have to do nothing to go to hell. Adam sealed that fate for us. Because Adam is our great, 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 great grandfather. All of us. His DNA has been transmitted to us through the genetic line. But not only the DNA the curse. The curse is gone. And I think for many of us... I mean, Adam might, Adam might have a long queue of questioners in heaven, you know? Like, round the block. But I think when Adam and Eve made that decision in the garden... And the worship team come up so long. When Adam and Eve made that decision in the garden, they didn't realize... That they were not only making that decision for themselves, but they were making that decision, and this is reality, for potentially millions, if not billions, of their children. They didn't only put themselves in hell, besides a redemption, they put potentially millions, if not billions, in hell too, by default. We see in John 3.16, God stepped in with a solution. And maybe you see this with new eyes, processing, processing it on the default concept. Do you guys understand the default? It's important to know. It's like it's going to happen anyway, unless they receive Jesus. The default setting was inherited from Adam. But God stepped in. For God so loved the world, God's looking down, looking at the defaults. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the only thing that upsets the default setting. Bob right now is sitting on hell. That's the setting. Already. The only thing that takes it off that setting is Jesus. Jesus. As John MacArthur said, he doesn't have to do something to go to hell. He just has to do nothing to go to hell. And that's the message that God has given us. Maybe you can just stand where you are. I understand that it's a weighty message that I've given us Today. But I hope that through the video and I hope through the word of God today that God has moved our hearts. That we can kind of get excited a little bit about evangelism. (laughs) Because it really is about saving people. And I'm hoping for some of you when you sit around the Christmas table. When you understand and you can explain to them. Maybe not as eloquently, because obviously I've sat for hours preparing this preach, but hopefully I've given you some handles to actually go, He's not only a God of love, but He's also a God of justice. The great magistrate of the universe. And that God would somehow convict our friends and family of their sin. Only God can show us our sin it takes a supernatural thing to show us our sin I've got someone I know is very close to me hasn't given his life to the Lord yet someone asked him why do you think you're going to heaven and he said honestly you really believed he said because I'm a good person good people don't go to heaven <laughs> no one is good Jesus said himself, no one is good, only God. And himself, obviously, he is God. I think by by our heads where we are, Lord, I just pray for us, Lord, that this mandate that Andrew's put on our congregations, and I'm not just preaching it because Andrew said it, but Andrew's reminded us. And even as we watched that video from Reinhard Bonnke, Lord, that the purpose of the vessel it's not a cruise ship but it's a ship that can save and that's his primary purpose and this is the ship that we're sailing in and we're all safe but they're not if they die in their sin they're alone forever forever Lord, put a fire in our hearts. You preached about hell more than anyone we know because it was relevant. Let us not be ashamed of it but help us, Lord, to be able to communicate your beautiful heart of love while we also share about the consequences of sin and the curse that we've inherited from our forefather Adam. maybe just as we've all got our heads bowed and just close your eyes let me give that opportunity now if you don't know that you're saved that you have cried out to jesus and that you've got Jesus' blood on you that i can give you a chance to respond today by putting up your hand if you've never given your heart to jesus or maybe you're not sure ah, if jesus comes tomorrow if the world ends tomorrow are you feeling confidence, Or are you going to be standing in those rows and rows and rows of people that make the queue at SARS look like a joke? Or are you going to be in a separate room with Jesus as he covers you with his blood and says, you man, I bought you, I paid for you, and you accepted it. But you need to respond. The Word of God says that if you respond, if you recognize Him, if you acknowledge Jesus before men, He will acknowledge you on that great and terrible day and say, Not that one! I bought that one. And they receive me. And you'll be taken to a different place, a different room, never to face the judgment. We pray with you now. If that's to you as anyone in this meeting, you know today, just make sure. Geez, the little bit of embarrassment making sure today. Just make sure. I know someone that gave their life to the Lord like seven times. They said, why do you keep on giving your life to the Lord? And they said, I just want to make sure. Are you sure? Anyone in this meeting, just raise your hand quickly. We'll pray with you. Otherwise, we'll move on. Okay. We'll accept that you, that you are all that you are is resting in what Jesus has done. Nothing in yourself. All on Jesus. One last prayer for us. Lord, I just pray that eagerness that Paul had to preach the gospel would be on us too. Because he said, I'm eager because it is the power of God and salvation for those who believe. Ronald Bonnke, on his last last campaign before he died, 850,000 Nigerians in Lagos. Hands going up everywhere into 8,000 churches. When Jesus says the fields are white, it's a harvest. He's not kidding. The Lord has given us a harvest here in Sunningdale. Don't stress out. Just make yourself available. Don't freak out. You don't have to be like the greatest... Just make yourself available. You're just a fellow beggar showing another beggar some food. Hey, I found this stream of water where we can drink pure water. Just go show another beggar the way. And this church will be full. Not for our credit, but for His inheritance. Amen?